Law, Liberty, Life in Jesus. The book of Galatians, knowing how it all works. I want to talk to you this morning about the difference between good religion and bad. The difference between good religion and bad. We're starting Galatians chapter 6. Probably another two weeks in Galatians, and then I want to do an extensive series on the atonement. In my place, condemned, he stood. That'll be next on the agenda. Got Good Friday coming up, and Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Titles for all that, you can probably see that online, if not yet, very shortly. The difference between good religion and bad. Galatians 6, 1 to 5. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself alone. That's an interesting sentence. And not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. You're working through a whole book. The last part of chapter 5 maps out this, this sharp contrast between uh, the life of selfish desires, the flesh, what we are just naturally apart from Christ, the life of the flesh and the life led by the Holy Spirit. We see this sharp contrast painted by Paul in verses 19, 20, and 21 of Galatians 5. Here's, here's what he said there. That should be 5. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, anything similar. So it's not an exhaustive list. This kind of thing. I warned you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things okay, will not inherit the kingdom of, of God. Some people don't get in. A lot of people have a hard time with that. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. The Bible doesn't. Get a grip. Paul assumes that Christians who are truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit will find in their hearts a growing... Oh, a growing revulsion against those kinds of sins. They, they won't like to see those things cropping up. They, they, they have crucified the flesh, 524, with its passions and desires. They aren't perfect yet, but they don't, they don't rest content with those ugly manifestations of the flesh. There's something pulling them in a different direction. That's what Paul says. But those verses that we studied opening chapter 6, they deal with a different issue altogether. 
The issue in chapter 5 is, how do people filled with the Spirit deal with their own sinful inclinations? The fresh emphasis emphasis in chapter 6 is, how do people... How are people filled with the Spirit? How do they relate to the sins in other people? Not their own, the sins of others. If spiritual people are people who are broken by their own sins and they're surgically zealous to cut them out and put them to death, that's chapter 5. How do spiritual people minister to the same kinds of sins in the lives of other people who are all caught and bound up in those sins? The fact that this is obviously the issue Paul wants us to consider, it's made clear by by the amazing fact that in these five opening verses of chapter 6, he opens the chapter describing a person caught in some sin, yet he mentions the sinner only once in the first verse. And then he spends five verses addressing not the sinner himself, but giving directions to the rest of the body of Christ how they're going to deal with that person. The instructions in our present text are necessary, it seems, because... Because it takes a lot more wisdom and sensitivity dealing with the sins in someone else's life than it takes to deal with the sins in my own life. Usually when I'm dealing with my own sins, the greatest need is simple honesty, usually. (laughs) Admitting, repenting, humbling. I'm prone to excuse my own sin a little too easily. I'm, I'm... I can easily justify my own sin. But when when I'm dealing with the sin in someone else's life, there are issues of tact. There are issues of discretion and discernment that go that go way beyond just the Holy Spirit exposing my sin. How will this other person respond? Is he or she willing to embrace the truth? How can I keep this person from condemnation or depression? Or what if he or she doesn't see the seriousness of the sin? How can I, how can I point it out without losing friendship? Those are the issues Paul wants to deal with. It's one thing to deal with sin in my own life. It just requires listening to the Holy Spirit as he speaks through his word. It requires brutal honesty, humility, not justifying, bring it, cut it out. That's how I react to sin exposed in my own life. But it's different when the sin is in someone else's life. Point number one. Lives ordered by the Holy Spirit share in a mutual passion for purity and ministry and holiness. I get that in 6, 1, and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the 
law of Christ. The issue here isn't what difference does the Holy Spirit make in me? No. The issue here is what difference does the Holy Spirit in me make to you? Whatever other signs may manifest the Spirit's presence in our midst, worship, praise, surely in Paul's mind, this is one of the key issues. This is what distinguishes a good church from a bad church, a healthy church from a sick church, an authentic Spirit-filled life from a phony Spirit-filled life. This is what makes the church the body of Christ on earth. We never just ignore any sin, but we aim to restore the sinner. It's interesting, when Paul describes the nature of the church, he doesn't do it the way we typically do it. I mean, we don't mean anything by it. We do it without thinking. But when Paul describes the nature of a church, he doesn't describe people in a congregation. He describes members attached to a body. There's a difference. 1 Corinthians 12, 20 to 27. As it is, there are many parts. He's not talking, doesn't use the word people. Many parts, but one body. The, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. Those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put... God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no, no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Notice, there are no detached individuals in Paul's image. There are only parts of a single body, right? And what Paul obviously means to show is that these parts have no, the parts have no independent life of their own. A part severed from the body has no life. A hand or an eye isn't a living thing all by itself. Its life depends on the body, the, the, the corporate gathering of a local church. We need to get this figured out in our heads. The corporate gathering of the local church isn't optional for spiritual life. It's impossible to have spiritual life without it. You can't have spiritual life just reading your Bible by your bed. 
that's a part of it when you have a corporate identity in the body of Christ. You know, you, 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 you might not, it might not bother you if you went out to Swiss Chalet with me and we had lunch together. But if you went out to Swiss Chalet and just had my index finger floating in your soup, you wouldn't say that's Don, would you? The part, the part has no life on its own. We've made the Christian life such that, well, I just kind of, and this terminology, I'm sorry, but it's not used anywhere in the New Testament. I just sort of accept Jesus, and then it's me and Jesus on the road to heaven and fooey on anybody else. You're not saved like that. I'm not sure that we really believe that anymore. All of us are humble enough to admit that we have no life apart from Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, we all say amen. But it's quite another thing and quite a bit more humbling, and I'm not sure we even believe that I have no no spiritual chance at life at all without you. That's a little more humbling. Well, Pastor Don, I can read the Bible. I can pray. I confess my sins. I don't swear, lie, cheat, drink, commit adultery. And immediately our minds just go to the things that we can do by ourselves. Paul Paul just says that there's a different picture entirely that we need to get a hold of. You are involved, you are involved in the growth of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. You are involved in my battle with the residue sin in my life. You are how the Holy Spirit chooses to grow in my life. This is how the Holy Spirit works. This is how the Holy Spirit works. He he pulls people above mere self-concern. That has to be a functional reality, not just a doctrinal one. How many people are there in a large church like ours who are who are who are right on the edge? of making a big spiritual mistake in their walk with Jesus. And they're, and they're, going, to, they're going to blindly go ahead and make terrible blunders simply because there was no one, apart from a preacher way far away dishing out spiritual advice, there was no one to prayerfully come alongside, take them to Starbucks, put a loving but firm hand on their shoulder and say, you know, I'll never share this with another soul but are you doing okay? I'm worried about you. I haven't seen you in church for months. Maybe it's a close friend. I've noticed a change in your disposition. Can I help in any way? All of this is what Paul captures so beautifully in that little word in verse 1. Restore such a one. Restore such a one. 
I still remember. I still remember in 1976. Rini and I moved and pastored a little church in Lanigan, Saskatchewan. And we didn't have a lot of furniture. And the church had an old china cabinet because right until we came, the pastor lived in the basement of the church. We got lucky when we came, they had a little townhouse. And there was an old, old, old china cabinet still in the basement of the church and we bought it. We bought it from the church. After a long board meeting discussing our request, the church decided to sell it to us for 10 bucks. That might not seem like much to you, but when I went to Lanigan, Saskatchewan, my paycheck was $62.80 per week. And I had a $70 car, car payment, so one of those was gone. And so we bought that. We bought that cabinet. I still remember the hours. You can guess whether it was Rini or whether it was I. But the hours of labor, stripping three or four layers of old paint, sanding, patching up old cracks, finally refinishing, reattaching the cleaned up hardware, in so many ways, it takes a lot more skill, a lot more patience, and a lot more work to restore something old. It's much easier just to replace it. Restoration. Restoration is a labor of love. It's what you do with something that isn't in good shape anymore. Paul says, there's people all over this room right now, and they need restoring. They haven't got it together. And it's a lot easier just to ignore them. But someone who's... Don't you have special admiration for someone who can take something that's old and a bit ratty and not very nice and they can turn it into something really beautiful? Restore such a one. Find that person. Look them up. There's another place in the New Testament that uses that very same word that's translated restore in our Galatians text. Let me show you another way that the same word gets translated. It's in Mark chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus calling the disciples. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat. Let you guess where that word translated restore gets translated into some different words here. Putting their nets in order. And the word behind that translation is exactly the same Greek word that's translated restore in Galatians. Putting in order. Mending, some of your translations will say. That's what James and John were doing. They had nets. The nets get torn. The nets get all tangled up, messed up. Get that picture in your mind. It's the kind of attention to detail, the kind of slow, patient work, the kind of unrelenting attention, untangling those nets, getting all the junk out of them, straightening up. Oh, it's torn here, patching it up, fixing it up. That's the same word Paul says, someone's caught in a sin, restore them. You don't throw the net 
out, you mend the net. Point number two. People can find themselves caught in a trespass from which they will never escape by themselves. It's right here. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Scholars debate exactly what Paul means when he says that a brother is overtaken. Some translations will say caught, caught in a wrongdoing, overtaken in a wrongdoing. Does he mean, does he mean caught in the sense that someone found him out, squealed on him? Or does he mean caught in a trespass, the way an animal gets caught in a hidden trap that springs around his leg. Same word can be translated either way. It can mean either thing, probably both. It doesn't make any difference, but I, I, I tend to think usually caught in the second sense, like, like an animal caught in a trap, only because I think it fits better with Paul's command to bear one another's burdens in verse 2. I think this is a person who, this is a person who, like a lot of us, didn't see the results of his actions coming. But suddenly, almost unawares, finds the burden, the burden of guilt and regret, hard to carry. He, he rushed into something thinking he was just making this choice, not realizing he was going to reap something a lot worse down the road. Isn't that the way it works? People can live so much of life only seeing their actions instead of seeing the result of their actions farther down the road. I mean, certainly there are, David talks about presumptuous sins. There are those stubborn, pig-headed, rebellious committed against full knowledge of the truth. Sure, that happens too. But most of the time, we're, we're foolish sinners who didn't see the trap. This picture of a sprung trap is an accurate one, isn't it? It, it shows us all that sin is, sin is always, it's always easier to get into than to get out of. And if you doubt that, find somebody with gray hair. Look around at them. It's the truth. You'll learn that. It's easier to get into than to get out of. But, but the Holy Spirit isn't done with trapped sinners. He has a plan. And at different times and different seasons and in different ways, you're part of that plan. Point number three. What is God's will for my life? Let me show you what God's will for your life is. For sure, this is included in God's will for your life. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, this is not a suggestion, it's a command. Restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. K 
carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is God's will for your life. It is so much in the plan of God that Paul calls this restoring ministry, he calls it the law of Christ. Not the suggestion, not even the teaching. This is absolutely what God requires spiritual people give themselves to. In fact, it, it's, like, it's like the law of gravity that spiritual people will do this. They'll get into this. If you're listening to the Holy Spirit at all, he will draw you into this restoring kind of ministry. But how? How is this ministry to be done? Well, we've already stated at the beginning of this message that in some ways it's, it's more difficult to deal with sins in others than in ourselves. Are there any guidelines? Do we just sort of trust the Holy Spirit to smooth out all the details? No, no. I think there are some instructions. The main rule Paul gives is stated in the last part of verse 1, and then it's repeated in slightly different words in verse 3. So verse 1, if someone is overtaken in a wrongdoing... You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you will not also be tempted. And then three, for if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, you know what this is? Um, this is that. Watching out for yourselves that you won't be tempted. If I forget that, I, I'm, I think I'm something more than I am. <laughs> He deceives himself. Here are the things that stand out to me. How to be a restorer of others. A. My own potential weakness and vulnerability, it's true, they're both true, but they aren't to be used as an excuse to keep me from involving myself, restoring my brother from his sin. You who are spiritual, restore such a person. How many times I pass the buck saying, well, who am, who am I? Who am I to correct so-and-so? I'm, I'm in no position to deal with that. No, Paul says. You and I are not to assume that God's going to work restoring my brother's life apart from my involvement. We are not to assume that God is going to restore your brother or sister's life apart from your involvement. B, I'm to restore my brother with an eye to myself. Brethren, even if someone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. How would I like to be dealt with if I was the one caught in a trespass? 
publicly or discreetly, harshly or gently, patiently or abruptly. In all these dealings, I am, at least in my first approaches, to remember the golden rule of Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't do nothing, but pay attention to this. See, here's another bit of instruction. I'm to restore my brother, remembering my own weakness and vulnerability to temptation and sin. There's, there's just, let me tell you, there is such great pastoral wisdom in Paul's instruction here. Especially if the sin of a fallen brother or sister is in some area, any area of sexual indiscretion, there is, there is tremendous vulnerability for the restorer to fall into some kind of attraction with that brother or sister. The power of spiritual empathy as you work through problems with a member of the opposite sex is incredibly strong. There's great attraction between the sexes when a deep spiritual concern is shared. Spiritual empathy starts off just praying with them can draw even mature Christians into attractions that are forbidden. Remember this temptation. That's Paul's plea. For all these reasons, I I just don't want to leave that at the point quite yet. If you knew the number of times, I've been here September 40 years, If you knew the number of times there's been uh, inappropriate sexual relation that was established precisely because uh, a guy is, is in a marriage that he finds misery, he doesn't love his wife, and all of a sudden there's someone else in the church who just seems to really understand him and pray with him. And, and all of a sudden... The, the, the man will, I've had them sit in my office. The man will say to me, but Pastor Don, there's nothing, there's nothing inappropriate happening. We just really, this is the first time in my life I felt that somebody would pray with me and understand what I was going through. And I can see it. This is going nowhere good. This is going nowhere good. Spiritual empathy between the sexes can draw people into inappropriate relationships. I've seen it over and over and over and over again because it looks so righteous and innocent at the start. Everybody hear me? Thank you. For all these reasons, I'm to undertake any kind of restoring ministry with humility and gentleness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The law is not against such things. I got to hurry. Four. Point number four. I must constantly resist the temptation to spiritual pride that constantly raises its head in any kind of faithful ministry to the Lord. That's what those tricky verses, Galatians 4 and 5, they're confusing verses until you see what Paul is doing. Let each person, now he's talking about those doing the restoring, not the person caught in the sin, the one who's going to work at restoring. 
Let each person examine his own work. And then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. They're confusing verses because at first glance, they seem to contradict everything Paul has just said. Bear one another's burdens. That's what he just said. Now, each one will bear his own load. And you feel like, Paul, make up your mind. The contradiction is only apparent. It's not real. Verses 1 through 3 deal with my attitude toward my brother. Verses 4 and 5 deal with my attitude toward myself. So I'm, I'm to resist the kind of pride that manifests itself in just, just that subtle self-congratulating. God used me. Boy, you, know, you don't know where they'd be if I hadn't gotten into their life and helped them out. You just have to stop and say, okay, does that sound like Jesus or someone else? Nothing can make me feel subtly proud like the recognition that, or I haven't stumbled in the way that so-and-so stumbled. I can use my brother's fall to elevate myself. Paul says, don't do it. Not in your own mind, not even quietly to yourself, not for one minute. Don't feed your own pride by measuring yourself with those who have fallen into sin. You are not above them. You stand only by grace and the power of the Spirit. You may not have sinned in the exact area they have sinned, but you are, Don, a sinner. Never forget it. And finally, verse 5, it's related to the same warning. We all have the inward tendency to justify ourselves by the practices of others. How many times I've heard it? Pastor, you think I'm bad. You should see the way my friends live. Paul warns all of us that our own load will not be made one bit lighter by the decline of holiness among others. My own guilt, my own righteousness in the spirit will be judged by the Lord without reference to any other human being on planet Earth. So in view of these eternal realities and in view of the need of brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, Paul calls us all to this wonderful, careful balance. Take seriously the responsibility for your own sins. Be ruthless with your own sins. And be gentle in restoring others in theirs. Paul says there, that's called walking in the Spirit. Don't ignore sins in anyone. But know how to restore, not just critique. And everyone said... I was waiting for you all to say, gee, Don, that's impossible. No, it's not. No, it's not. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We love your word. We just love your word. It is, it is uh, stabilizing to know we have a place where 
what we read and see is absolutely true, unaltered, divine revelation, God's words, a word from our creator. And so we treasure these truths in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.